Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Mike Rosen. Hi. Uh, Mike Rosen, as you may know from our Day the Clown Cried episode. A classic of, of Have You Seen This? Yes, is a uh, our resident uh, author, artist, and uh, cultural gadfly. Yes, an expert on all things clown. Exactly. I knew I had to have him back for tonight's episode. Was I... this movie funnier than Day the Clown Cried? Uh, well, I haven't I seen. I honestly couldn't say. Mm, I don't think that this movie defies, really, it's it's very similar to Day of the Clown Cried, and it really defies all logic and explanation, and when you see it, it's, it's a movie that you do not understand what anyone involved in making it was thinking or aiming for or intending. Um, it, it, is, it is a genre in and of itself. It kind of is. Yes. The movie that we're talking about is Nothing But Trouble from 1991. Right. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's directorial debut and swan song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike, can you give us kind of a, the capsule summary of Nothing But Trouble? Sure. So in Nothing But Trouble, uh, Demi Moore and funny man Chevy Chase uh, play... <laughs> funny man with quotes around Funny it. man with quotes around it. Fun fact... Um, so that I've noticed is every time you read the back of a VHS clamshell and an actor is described as a funny man rather than a comedian, um, that's, a, that's a red flag. But anyway, so Chevy Chase and Demi Moore play a pair of New York yuppies um, who go on a, a, a field trip. They go on a picnic trip uh, in their BMW uh, down through the New, Jer- New Jersey Pine Barrens. And they get waylaid by um, County Cop, uh, played by John Candy, who brings them in front of the 106-year-old Justice of the Peace, um, played by Dan Aykroyd in ghoulish makeup. Dan Aykroyd in layers of foam and pancake right. makeup. Yeah. And um, severely unconvincing old age makeup. Yes. It is essentially um, a a hillbilly horror movie. It's a premise you've seen done in dozens of cheap direct-to-video horror flicks, you know, or and some classics, uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, probably being the most obvious uh, one that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, however, uh, as you might have guessed from the fact that it stars John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, and Chevy Chase, it's actually played as a zany madcap comedy. That's what they were attempting, anyway. Right. I mean, that's that's the intent here. And it's just the most bizarre um, pr- end product that I think I've ever seen. Uh, it's, it's really hard to f- really grasp what they were thinking when they were making this movie. Yeah, I really do not know what Dan Aykroyd was getting at with this film. I don't I don't I don't know what he hoped to put across to the audience. Yeah, I mean I think that's really it is because when we're watching it it's like um I I've seen this movie a few times and I've 
Anytime I've spoken with anyone who's seen this movie, they all hate this movie. Everybody universally hates this movie. And people don't just hate it, but they have they feel revolted by it. There's this sense of people leave it feeling queasy and sick and just nauseated. And it's and I find it kind of compelling because even though it's not a good movie, um, it's one of those movies that when I watch it, I feel like it was made specifically for me. <laughs> Like, Dan Aykroyd made this movie, but no one's going to like this except Mike Rosen. He's going to appreciate what I was trying to do here. <laughs> um, and not that I not that I really do, because I hate it as well, but, like, <laughs> I, I find it just, like, so fascinating. Um, no, it's true, and that's why I wanted you on for this uh, episode, because it's a movie that's really in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Because you've written... I know that you've written comics, which kind of take place in uh, dank swamps with uh, shadows lurking... Yeah. in the darkness you made a really astute uh comparison earlier where you were like this, this movie's like house of a thousand corpses basically it really is. it's the same trope and the one that it reminded me of was actually bonfire of the vanities mm, yeah which uh the book was big the tom wolf novel um uh de palma made a movie out of it that came out and flopped but again the premise is very similar in that it's two new york yuppies going somewhere where they shouldn't and something terrible happens yeah so that was maybe in the zeitgeist at the time um bonfire of the vanities was i think 87 this mm -hmm. came out in 91 yeah so about the same yeah yeah they're sort of in the same um general time frame and and again it, it's a common trope in a lot of movies that especially you know horror movies of course uh you know the fear of uh degenerate rural folk who threaten you know normal uh, rich Manhattanite type people? Um, especially, I think if you're a Hollywood type person, you know who lives exclusively in Los Angeles and New York, and the rest of the country is that flyover bit, you know where the plebs live. You know those sorts of people are especially threatening to you. Yeah, especially since in uh, especially in Southern California, um, we don't really have dank woods or yeah. secretive swamps. <laughs> Uh, we have the Inland Empire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there are very few... Um, that's interesting, because, yeah, California is not really a state that lends itself well to this genre of movie. Uh, most movies that take place in this genre, of course, are Deep South, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, West Virginia. Uh, this is a little unusual, because this is um, <laughs> taking place in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. Um, I've seen probably one or two other movies that take place in that area, Um I is that a notoriously creepy area? It is. Um, I our, mean, it is Jersey. So. Yeah. Well, our, our well, our mutual friend uh, who comes from that area uh, often speaks um, of the 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 horrors of the Pineys <laughs> and how, as a youth, uh, he would take his bike out, you know, into these areas, and if you saw a house, you left. <laughs> like, you did not get close. Um, so yeah, I mean, apparently, it's a pretty creepy area. Um, now, I've never been there. I don't know much about the area myself. Uh, this movie, I have to give it some credit because it, it, the window dressing in this movie is amazing. And it really does communicate a sense of, like, otherness and, and just, you know, desolation when, they, when John Candy brings our, I won't say heroes, but our protagonists. <laughs> yes. Yeah, to uh, the courthouse where they're, they're entering. There's this real sense of they're entering uh, another world. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a gate that kind of goes down, almost an all hope, all who enter here abandon hope type thing. 
They... Yeah, and it's kind of funny when um, Demi Moore says like, "Oh, the owner must really be into folk art." Yeah, which is kind yeah. of a. It's a funny. It's funny because it's a really pale way of putting it. Like there are all these like grotesque sculptures and weird like creature looking things surrounding the road yeah yeah it's like yeah i guess you could call it folk art yeah that's that's one way in which this movie the only way this movie knocks it out of the park is in the area of production design it's really like it's um it's, it's really inventive it really is and it's it's actually i would say it's better than most of the uh the movies that are actually trying to scare you with this sort of thing uh because they're coming in it's like when they're first coming in, you know, they're, they're driving through this desolate, like, endless hellscape of, like, old washing machines and, like, rusted old cars. And uh, they're, they're um, uh, when they actually see the house, it's this old, like, uh, this old kind of, you know, courthouse-looking thing. All the windows are completely boarded up. So when you see, first see it, it just looks like this massive wooden structure, this edifice with no, looks like it just doesn't have windows at all. And it looks like something out of a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. It's not like we gasped when we saw it, but we yeah. were both like, whoa, like yeah. that's that's kind of an incredible set. Yeah. And the whole sequence where they're coming in is very well, sort of, is, I won't say very well done, but it's pretty well done because you're seeing all this weird stuff that they're seeing. They, um, one of the things that they mention is their signs up kind of telling people like, oh, you're here, Shire Reeve. The, you're in, you're in the presence of Shire Reeve, and Demi Moore makes these comments about how, oh, this is medieval law, pre Magna Carta. This is old stuff. So you're again, it's getting sense that they're they're going to a place where normal law does not apply. They're outside the jurisdiction of like, you know, right, you know, and and there's they also have their old their their BMW has whatever is GPS back then. It's I don't even know. Yeah, what uh, it is. somebody uh, somebody on IMDb took the time to describe this. Uh, system of uh, direction finding which i think is called etac or something like that and uh they point out like well it's not it's not a gps it doesn't use satellite positioning it uses uh maps and dead reckoning yeah so thank you anonymous nerd yeah i like in the in the movie where they they specifically mention specifically mention something about the cartridge not having uh information about this area did that did that company like pay to place that in the movie because i don't think they got their money's worth yeah they were like this is gonna be put us on the map yeah exactly that's what that's why nobody has a has an e-tax system yeah. but yeah anyway the e-tax system <laughs> fails while they're coming though oh it we're off the grid it doesn't say yeah. where we are which, which is which, another trope exactly i mean nowadays it'd be like oh no cell phone reception. i threw the map into the creek yeah oh i remember that <laughs> That idiot. What an idiot. I hate that guy. Fucking ruined everything for them. They could have gotten out of that woods. But anyway, so there's this... So this whole sequence, unfortunately, is sunk mostly because of one glaring problem that sinks the entire movie, and that is Chevy Chase. Now, apparently, uh, Chevy Chase did this movie because his friend... Dan Aykroyd asked him to. Uh, as you recall, they will, they worked together on Saturday Night Live back in um, the, the classic era of the show in yes. the mid-70s. Um, so Chevy Chase did this as a favor to Dan Aykroyd, and it appears to be an incredibly begrudging favor because he is so fucking checked out throughout this movie. Like, he can barely be bothered to do, like... You know, his like, because uh, one of the things that he was known for in SNL was his physical comedy, you yeah. know, like imitating Gerald Ford and falling down and stuff like that. But he can barely be bothered. No, he does not give one shit. Like, it's the most 
half-assed mugging, and then it doesn't help that the character he plays is an asshole. Yeah. And the whole reason that they get sucked into this nightmare is because he decides that he's going to try to beat this rural cop by speeding in his BMW. So, you know, you you hate the character because it's like, well, number one, like, he's a... What does he do? He's a financial publisher. Right, yeah. A very 80s profession. Yeah, it's a very, he's, it's a very like 80s yuppie type profession. So, you know, he's a little hard to relate to already. Then he's played by Chevy Chase with all this like fucking, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not attitude. <laughs> so you really have, n- there's nothing that you like about this character. Yeah. And uh, Chevy Chase's performance is so just half-assed and yeah. like bored out of his mind. What, what it really is, is every time Chevy Chase opens his mouth, he might as well be saying, hey, check it out. I'm in a movie. <laughs> because every scene, he just refuses to react like an actual person. Like the whole scene where they're driving into the, the courthouse and the other, and like Demi Moore is doing a game job of trying to act a little bit like, oh, this is kind of weird. And yeah, she, like Demi Moore isn't good in this movie, but she's no, trying. She tries, you know. Uh, but Chevy Chase is just like, hey, here's some wacky quips I'm doing just sh- to show how little of a fuck I give about everything going on around me. Do you even think that those, do you think his quips were even in the script or was that him like ad-libbing? Because oh, they're not funny. They're not. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to say something super dry and sarcastic to show how above it all I am. It's weird because half of them almost feel like they were they were they're in there because you cannot trust the audience to like figure out what's going on it's almost like he's narrating cuz there is like the, like the one that i know is that there's a scene a little later in the movie because the inside of the courthouse is just like jam packed with all sorts of garbage yeah um which is it, you know there's just like the walls are covered in stuff like there're piles of paper on the ground just everything everywhere and uh there's one scene they're going down a hallway and the walls are covered in clocks which is just like, oh, hey, a, a weird hallway full of clocks. And Chevy Chase is like, he's being pushed, you know, like harassed by these hillbillies down the hallway. And Chevy Chase is like, oh, you got the time? It's like, <laughs> it's like Chevy Chase, you're about to be murdered. Maybe you should uh, <laughs> cut back in the quips a little bit, you know? Well, the problem is, is that none of, none of the characters, um, certainly the protagonists, don't act like human beings. No, no. Because, um, like, for, he's just a blase asshole. Yeah. And then Demi Moore's character is written like, any other uh, like half-assed woman character where she immediately just like gloms on to the the handsome lead. Oh God, yeah. Like it's... really, and there is initially when you know when they get thrown down into the pit or whatever. Right, right. Like after the trial, um, she jumps up and slugs him, which is as you would. Which is very satisfying. Like yeah. she's she's mad at him because he got her in the situation. Um, also because he was trying to fuck her, basically. Yeah. And about um, 10 but, minutes... Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Like, 10 minutes later, like, she starts, like, trying to make out with him. I guess yeah. because he's male and he's there. But it makes no sense. Like, right. if I were her, I would want to fucking murder him. And that's the thing is, like, I thought that's what they're leading up to because they, they're they basically trapped in this room together. Uh, Chevy Chase says some sort of asshole thing. And Demi Moore immediately starts, like like, you know, knob-gobbling him. And I was thinking, like, oh, clearly she's pissed off about his asshole comment. This is leading up to something. She's trying to get close to him, lead him on. She's going to knee him in the balls or something. Yeah, I thought that she was fucking with him. Yeah, but no, she's like... And then she's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm just... Oh, I, uh, your, your anal magnetism has overcome me. I can't help myself. Oh, I need to sleep now. And then she falls asleep in a bed. And it's like, 
okay? Yeah, because, like, number one, like, you know, I don't care if I'm locked in a room with a guy who's, like, a, a combination of, like, Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans, you know? <laughs> like, if I'm in a creepy, like, backwoods hillbilly house where I've been threatened with the death penalty, I, I am not going to want to get it on with anyone. Yeah, yeah. Chevy Chase, I mean, Chevy Chase is a huge part of why this movie does not work. Yeah. Um, I won't say, it's funny because we were, in doing some research for this, we happened to look at Chevy Chase's authorized biography, I Am Chevy Chase and You Are Not, um, which is uh, worthless, pretty much. <laughs> um, but there's a chapter on Nothing But Trouble, which basically spends about like half a page talking about his, the movie and then the rest of the chapter is just random uh experiences from chevy chase's life about how great he is and he's a man of his word yeah and how he's a man of his word and how like rex reed apparently didn't like him uh in some movie and then chevy chase saw rex <coughs> reed in real life and 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 like a like resisted the urge to punch him in the face because Chevy Chase is that decent of a human being. What a great guy. What a great guy. The way he doesn't sink to violence yeah. in dealing with people who've mildly criticized yeah. him. But this chapter, uh, what it does say about Nothing But Trouble is basically that like, oh, Chevy Chase knew from the beginning this was like a mistake and it was terrible, but he, he, but he promised Dan Aykroyd he'd be in it and he's a man of his word. And it, it's basically... Um, and, and then uh, it says that, like, uh, apparently after the movie came out um, to near, u- near, or should I say completely universal um, uh, panning yes. by everyone in the entire universe. Um, yeah, no one liked this yeah, movie. Yeah, no one likes this movie. Uh, Dan Aykroyd um, fell on his sword, um, basically taking full responsibility <laughs> for the failure of the movie because he didn't want anyone else involved to feel like they're... Uh, contributions hadn't been sufficient. Now, the book phrases this in such a way that it's like, Dan Aykroyd fell on a sword as well he should. Uh, I think how, that's... How dare he soil Chevy with this yeah. project? But I think that's unfair because yeah. I think that um, Chevy Chase is a huge... Sh- just shitty in this movie. Really shitty. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd, even though he makes so many missteps, yeah. um, there's some ways that I think it's it's kind of a, a noble effort, almost. I mean, he... It's, well, I f- uh, It's... The whole movie is kind of like those jokes that you tell just with your really close friends. Yeah, yeah. That no one else will laugh at. Like, you can tell that... You can tell that Dan Aykroyd thinks this shit is really funny. Like... He really delights in playing this horrible old judge character. Should we talk? Let's talk about the judge. Well, let's, um, let me, let me give a little production background first. Um, this, the genesis of this movie was that, uh, Dan Aykroyd has a brother called Peter Aykroyd, um, who I think worked, um, was on SCTV and SNL for like a hot second. Mm -hmm. Um, he did a little bit of writing, uh, comedy writing. And uh, he came up, apparently he came up with this story because he has a story credit on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he also, uh, he also plays a, the doorman at Chevy Chase's character's building with a completely inexplicable Irish accent. Yeah. Like, which I don't, I don't know if it was his homage to Orson Welles and Lady from <laughs> Shanghai because this accent is really that bad. That That's a very um, erudite reference for this movie. <laughs> but it's, it's weird. Like, it's. It's like a throwback because, like, uh, those kinds of, like, like uh, really 
flamboyant Irish accents in New York. It's like, what is this? Gangs in New York? Yeah, that's like, true. Is this, is this like 1875? It's a style of comedy that you don't really see uh, by the 80s quite as much. And yeah, it's like, did did Dan Ecker and Peter Ecker just think this was the funniest thing ever? Like, oh, that accent's great. You gotta do that accent. It's so funny. <laughs> well, you know... Pff. Maybe, maybe there was an actual like Irish doorman they knew, and it was drawn from real life, just like so much me. in this movie. But yeah, so uh, Peter Ackroyd came up with the story. It was based on an incident that actually happened to Dan Ackroyd. I would be, actually be curious to hear his account of the, the real story. But um, uh, he, I guess he was hot rodding through the, you know, the back roads, and uh, he ran into a cop who then hauled him up in front of a justice of the peace in the middle of the night for like an impromptu trial. And, uh, that's where the story developed from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, he wrote the screenplay, he directed, he starred in it. And then like Mike said, he fell on a sword at the end of it. Yeah. I think he's the real stand up guy here. Yeah. I've never heard anyone say a bad thing about Dan Aykroyd. No, that's true. Like, um, I was reading a little bit about him during the SNL days and I guess he was a little bit of a, you know, kind of a temperamental hellraiser, like all of the guys who were on that show at the time. But, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, apparently like a likable guy. Chevy Chase, on the other hand, uh, got on SNL, immediately let fame go to his head and has become one of the most hated men in show business. Yeah. I guess he, uh, I guess he fucked up his comeback on Community because he ended up clashing with Dan Harmon on that show, who probably isn't the easiest guy to get along with. But yeah, but yeah if you... Like, you, if you go to Gawker, you can basically read, like, a list of incidents in which Chevy Chase was a complete dick. It seems like his only friend is Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, probably. Yeah, and then and then in his uh, biography, they kind of shit on Dan Aykroyd, so <laughs> nice. maybe they're not friends now. It's the it's the Chevy Chase way. Yeah. It's like shit on people who gave you a good turn. <laughs> um, and again, God, like, I don't even know where to start because I, again, I don't know what he was getting at with this movie like who is this movie for uh i like can you can you honestly name any group or subgroup that this movie would appeal to um well when i said earlier that i feel like this movie was specifically made just for me yeah but you're that's what i feel yeah but i mean well here's the thing is i the group is mike i really enjoy horror movies that are played as comedy and comedy played as horror like i'm a big fan of for example i think the best thing is um uh, League of Gentlemen. Yes. And, and uh, mentioning earlier, we said House of a Thousand Corpses, which again is a horror movie, which is very comedic. Or I shouldn't say, it's not particular. You might find it funny, but the, the monsters, the villains in it are played kind of comedically, which again makes it very similar to this one. So, you know, I like dark comedy too. And this one's not a... Not a dark comedy. Um, well, it's it barely qualifies yeah, as comedy. It's it's. Did not, we laugh at any point? Once there was one laugh, I think. Oh, the skunk. The skunk. Um, <laughs> There's a part where um, Chevy Chase flings a taxidermied scuff a skunk at Dan Aykroyd's character. Yeah. And I, Dan Aykroyd yells out, "My skunk!" Yeah. <laughs> and we both cracked up at that. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a that's a piss poor laugh ratio. Yeah. <laughs> like once in. Uh, was this movie like 90 minutes long? Yeah, too long. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about like Dan Aykroyd in this movie. He plays uh, the judge, who's the central antagonist. And besides Chevy Chase just being terrible, uh, another major issue with this movie is Dan Aykroyd's performance as the judge. 
because basically he's a, a rural judge in you know the Pine Barrens, uh, or Justice of the Peace. I don't know what the difference is really. He's the Shire Reeve. The Shire whatever? Reeve, and he's like. I he's... feel like Dan Aykroyd did a lot of arcane research for this movie. Yeah. Or, or maybe it was more like this is the kind of stuff that he reads about. Yeah, I, that makes sense. I have a feeling that he spends a lot of time on Wikipedia these days, <laughs> just reading about random stuff. But yeah. uh, also, it should be mentioned that uh, Dan Aykroyd has some crazy beliefs in real life. Yeah, uh, he's a uh, his his family was basically full of spiritualists. Uh, seances were an, uh, not an uncommon thing when he was growing up. Um, I believe his father wrote a book on ghosts. He did mention, um, he's mentioned recently about his family history of ghost busting. Yeah. Um, and I think you said on another podcast that uh, to Dan Aykroyd, Ghostbusters was a documentary. Yeah, filmed in real time as it happened. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he believes in ghosts. He believes in UFOs. Uh, he, there was a documentary on Netflix a while back, which was a fan interviewing him about his like UFO beliefs. That, yeah. That was entertaining as hell. I I call that a big yes. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, that kind of fits because, I mean, most of the things that Dan Ackert believes are common fodder for, um, you know, cheapo horror movies. Yeah. And once again, that's exactly what we're getting here. Um, He's playing like a character that's like, I would say straight out of League of Gentlemen. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's this grotesque, ancient judge i think they call him 106 years old they, they mentioned that he's just like covered in like awful latex you know uh, old age old makeup. age makeup you know he's he's kind of shaking like old man shakes the whole thing he runs this like you know this weird fun house uh of horrors where like he dispenses you know people come in like for traffic violations and he basically puts them to death in various he, ingenious wacky contraptions. Yeah, he dispenses Rube Goldberg style justice. Yeah, exactly. Which again is it's a shame because it actually is kind of inventive. Um, like the the bone stripper. Yeah, I love the bone stripper. Which is like a like a creepy carnival roller coaster that basically ends with um, people's skeletons getting spit out yeah and it's it could and it could have been like so much more horrifying but there's like no gore so it's kind of more funny yeah like the skeletons come out at the end like you know chevy chase goes through it and the machine breaks and uh he lands on like a pile of bones yeah and like when the bones come shooting out and hitting the (laughs) there's a big target painted and they hit it they make the kind of wacky boing 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 sound effects (laughs) so it's it's funny because it's like it's clearly supposed to be comedy, but it's not real. It's not comedic enough to be funny, and it's not horrible enough to be horror. So it's just very strange. It's it's hard to tell how we're supposed to react to this stuff. And again, it's unfortunate because the Bone Stripper roller coaster is again an amazing piece of set design. It's fucking cool. Yeah, it's like you got this like the roller coaster itself looks like it's made out of like random garbage yeah like you know. chain link fence and like old track yeah and, and then yeah. like you got the the bone stripper billboard it's like an old 1850s medicine patent medicine ad with like a this face of a guy with a big old handlebar mustache and you get thrown into his mouth and these big like iron chompers like you know basically shred you into you know yeah bones. They, they set it up in the movie by uh some <laughs> it's a <laughs> It's some uh, random druggies led by uh, a stray Baldwin brother. Yeah. I'm not kidding. It's one of the Baldwins. Um, yeah. They get thrown into the bone stripper and uh, come out as uh, 
as skeletons. Yeah, so it's it's definitely got a lot of create creative put- touches in this movie. Um, but oh, again, for sure, for it's, sure, it's hard to really see what's all in service of the. Um, it is kind of uh, the effectiveness of that set design and production design is a little bit reduced because it's um, it's shot very brightly. It um, is. The cinematographer on this was Dean Cundy, who uh, uh, cut his teeth on a lot of schlock and then went on to shoot, like, fucking Jurassic Park mm-hmm. um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. you know, so, And I don't know if that was uh, kind of a function of the time where um, they, they didn't want... I don't know if they uh, just kind of gravitated more towards a little bit brighter lighting then or if uh, they're like oh it's comedy we do comedy lighting yeah and we don't we don't want to get too gross with this well i think i would say it's um I, i'm not a historian or anything on this but um or i don't know anything about cinematography or lighting or any of that shit i didn't go to no fancy pants film school <laughs> i i was i i learned on the streets um but i have watched a lot of horror movies horror movies from this time period sort of early 90s, late yes, 80s. 90, and, 91. Yeah, and watching them nowadays is very jarring because they are all very brightly lit. Uh, you watch, like, the old Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, and everything's happening in broad daylight. Everything is brightly lit and cheery, and I think just a lot of them are very cheap, and they're like, they didn't bother. You know, like, oh, don't bother doing making it scary. It's not until you get to, like, Fairly recently, I think, like, The Ring is one of the first movies I can think of where they really did that, like, blue filter, like, day, you know, that, like, everything's really gloomy and depressed. <laughs> and every horror movie since has that blue filter. Um, but, you know, you go back far enough in time and horror movies were not really, they, they were not lit for gloom. They were not shadowy and dark like they no, are now. No, it's hard to think of a, of a mainstream horror film at the time that was uh, very moody yeah. in lighting. And so now I'm, one, I'm actually thinking, you know, maybe if this film was made today, the cinematography and the lighting would be more appropriate to a horror movie, which would probably go a long way in establishing what we were actually supposed to feel towards everything. Yeah, you would def- I think you would definitely feel a little more creeped out. Yeah. I mean, assuming it's supposed to be a horror movie, and I assume that it is in some ways just because it hits the beats so perfectly. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing, because as you pointed out while we were watching it, it exactly follows the beats of a horror script. Yeah. Um, and I'm not opposed to, like you, I'm not opposed to comedy horror. Um, you know, stuff like Dead Alive. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Um, but, you know, in a movie like Dead Alive, they go a lot, they weren't afraid to go just totally gross with it. Right. And there is a little bit of grossness in this movie, but it's things like, oh, Dan Aykroyd's character eats a, a hot dog covered in mustard in close up. Okay, so this, so the, the dinner scene. That was gross. This is. This scene is so weird um, <laughs> because after the the judge has you know our our protagonist captured and he's the judge has this entire backstory that they they spit out where it's um, basically he his grandfather made this horrible land deal uh, which resulted in an eternal coal fire burning under the property. Like Centralia, Pennsylvania, which yeah, apparently... like I feel like Dan Aykroyd read about Centralia, yeah. Pennsylvania, which also I believe is supposed to be haunted. Yes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. it makes sense that Dan Aykroyd would have you know studied that and 
found that a, a great along with the yeah. Tunguska blast of, yeah, blast of, of 1909. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, honestly, like the the premise Centralia, Pennsylvania, is another good atmospheric uh, concept to base a horror movie because I mean, more recently, the Silent Hill movie was oh, also true. based on that same incident. Yeah, but um, um, sorry, I totally interrupted you. You were making a point about uh, Dan Eckhart's character in the dinner scene, right? Well, his, yeah, because I got the story. I got distracted because I was saying he's got this huge backstory, so he's got motivation for hating Chevy Chase because he hates bankers. He for, hates bankers, for this, and he mistakes yeah. uh, Chevy Chase's character, yeah. the financial publisher. Yeah. For a banker. And, you know, and they have this whole thing. I guess he was uh, he was fighting in World War One when this happened, just to establish how old he is. And they 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 give him a lot of uh, history as opposed to the heroes who are, like, just complete ciphers in this movie. Just completely bland yuppies. Yeah, it's like, oh, there's – it's – I mean, you can see where Dan Aykroyd's heart was when he made this movie, and his—I would almost say his sympathies lie. Uh, but anyway, the judge—he. But that's dis- another, yeah. And thematically, it's that's another thing which is very muddled. But we'll get to that. So yeah, exactly. Please continue. Uh, so after having decided he hates bankers and he wants to basically torture Chevy Chase because he's a banker, he also decides he wants to set up Chevy Chase with his granddaughter. Um, have this weird shotgun wedding. So the dinner scene is where they first introduce the judge's grand... He, he has them all here for dinner, and he introduces his granddaughter, played hilariously by John Candy and drag. Um, <laughs> now that's primo comedy right yeah. there. It's the Monty Python principle. You just put a guy in a dress, and it's funny, am I right? The, the Brits love it. <laughs> we work here, too. It's very dry. And uh, I think that was a factoid that we found online when we were researching this movie that... Uh, and again, like, it's an IMDb factoid, so take it with a grain of salt. Also, like, it's very stupid. But apparently, Dan Aykroyd was thinking one day, and he imagined his friend John Candy in drag. And this mental image was so funny, he burst with laughter. This is how it was written on IMDb. He burst with laughter. And then he just had to write this character into the movie. So, um, having seen this movie... Um... I, I don't think that John Candy and drag is as funny as Dan Aykroyd imagined it would be. No. Not enough to carry this movie. Now, it's actually, I, I will, well, I'll get Oh, it. and uh, John Candy plays a dual role. Oh, that's right, because he's the also way. the cop Like, uh, Dan Aykroyd plays uh, multiple roles, I think. Yeah, he plays, yeah, two roles in this movie. Yeah. Um, so does John Candy. Um, John Candy is the cop who originally brings them to the judge. And he's also uh, the judge's granddaughter. Actually, I think they're said to be brother and sister. Yeah. I, I think in everyone a, in in this, all the hillbillies are basically the judge's family. I think yeah, in uh, a mute performance. Yes. So this this movie's really hitting on all cylinders when it comes to roles for women. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually think John Candy acquits himself well in this role. No, and that's the, it, and it's kind of a sad reminder that uh, John Candy left us too soon. Because he's such a likable presence. He really is. And uh, and that's what's funny, because the character of the cop who pulls them over, you know, you would think that's a, an antagonistic role. But you really like him. You li- you sure like him more than Chevy Chase. He's so nice. Yeah. He's like the nicest guy. and He just seems very nice and pleasant. You're like, oh, this is a guy, like, just really doing his job by the book. He takes this very seriously. Yeah. And I mean, even in the scenes in the courthouse when the judge is like threatening them all with, with death, John Candy's cop character is, you can see that he's a guy who takes 
the concept of the law seriously because he's like, hey, these are speeders. They, sh I recommend that you, you know, bond fine release. You know, that's the speeding thing. And the judge is basically like, oh, whatever, I'll do whatever I want because I'm a crazy old judge and I'm the law here. And John Candy is kind of taking a little bit of a stand against that that you see. So he's a he's a very he's he's a very sympathetic character in this movie and a very likable presence. And even when he plays his mute sister, she's she's kind of what you'd expect um, in this sort of movie. A, a hulking, you know, non-speaking beast woman who <laughs> whose who's sole thing is to be like, who is that? Like, um, her whole role is basically to be like Sadie Hawkins from Little Abner and that she's like <laughs> chasing down a man so that she can rape him, you know? Oh my God, it's such a switcheroo. Yeah, but even so, I mean, he his performance is kind of a little sympathetic that way too because they, they show him when he's... Tr when John Candy's female role is like, you know, trying to dress to please um, Chevy, Chevy Chase. Chase. Yeah. A beshackled Chevy Chase. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he kind of makes face in the beginning. Oh, you Chevy Chase, you, you liked it? No, you don't like this? Oh, I'm, I'm sad. And it's yeah. like, you know, so she, he's actually pretty, he, he, he endows a character with a little bit of um, a pathos. Yeah, like it doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't help that uh, Chevy Chase is such a huge asshole. You just hate his character. Yeah. But uh, you're kind of, you're kind of, you're kind of rooting for John Candy's characters in this movie. Yeah. You're certainly rooting for the cop character. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, back to this dinner scene. Um, this is a scene where, so this is where they bring out like the whole family, I guess, and everyone's kind of meeting and th they have hot dogs for dinner. And it's, this is a scene I think that most people are especially grossed out by. Yeah, because um, the prevailing point of view seems to be about this movie. People say that they hate it and then they say that it's gross. Yeah. And I actually didn't find it that gross. It's I not, found yeah. a couple of things about it gross. It's not human centipede levels of gross. No. Like, I've seen much grosser than this movie. Yeah. But this scene is basically they have their... They're eating... Well, it's, it's again... It's, there's a lot of attention to detail, mm -hmm. and some of the food that they eat, it's not necessarily gross, but it, it just it, it, it imbues the movie with this sense of wrongness. Because the things that they're eating, like, one of the first things they bring out is ants on a log. Yeah. And it's um, like... Yeah. Celery with peanut butter and raisins. Yeah. And Demi Moore acts like this is the most bizarre disgusting thing she's ever seen like she can barely bring herself to touch celery now the thing is like this is in real life of course this is a perfectly normal food that people eat but it's bizarre at a dinner party right so that makes it feel very off it's uh it's a very weird almost childish food it is yeah so so it's actually i think a really almost brilliant touch because there's nothing inherently wrong with it it's just it puts you off kilter when you see that. And then they bring out um, hot dogs, which are these disgusting, limp, like, uh, bratwurst-looking things. They're clearly, you know, they, they steam them in this weird pressure cooker. It, they look kind of, they don't look awful, but they look kind of disgusting, you know, a little gross. And um, they're eating them using not hot dog buns, but like Wonder Bread. And again, I think this is pretty a pretty great touch because there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's like, you know, it kind of makes you, you a little queasy. You don't even get hot dog buns here? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, exactly. And I think when we were talking about this earlier, I, I brought up, again, a, a way too erudite reference to compare it to. 
because I was talking about uh, Dario Argento. Yeah. And if you watch a lot of his, uh, kind of, I think they're Giallo movies. Giallo's, yeah. Giallo, thank you. Um, and one of the things that he's really into is that sensory overload. And he mentions in some of his writings that like there are things that happen in the movies that are in there because like like a person bumping their knee against a table. And he put it in there because everyone knows what that feels like. So everyone can sympathize with that. You know that pain. It, it, it's, again, like the senses are overloaded with this, this pain there. So it's the same thing with this movie, with the scene where eating the hot dogs, because it's not necessarily especially gross or weird, but everyone's had that experience, you know, where you've been someplace where you have to eat like hot dogs with white bread. <laughs> or you see someone eating a hot dog and they get that mustard shit all over their face yeah. and it grosses you out. That was that was the gross part for me was uh, the close-up of Dan Aykroyd in old age makeup, like, chewing with his mouth open. Yeah. Like, hot dog and mustard. Oh, God. Ugh, it's so yeah. nasty. It's so nasty. And this is, again, one of the most famous shots in the movie because Dan Aykroyd is doing this. Yeah. The- and, oh, my God. What... Yeah, no, please yeah. continue. They, they cut to Chevy Chase making a reaction face. Then they cut back to Dan Aykroyd and his nose is a penis. Um, <laughs> and then back to, Dan a- back to Chevy Chase reacting and then back to Dan Aykroyd and he's normal again. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, what, what that, what's up with that? It is, it is beyond me what they were trying to say with that shot. Yeah, it's repeated There's... again later in the movie, so it's like a leitmotif, but you know... Yeah, when did it? What what happened exactly when it came in again? It's the final shot in the movie when when Dan Aykroyd is on the TV. Oh god! So yeah, yeah, like the penis nose comes back. Yeah, and it's like this weird phallic threat. Yeah, against Chevy Chase. <laughs> like I don't know, I don't know what that means. Well, combined with you know the fact that it's it's also a movie where Chevy Chase is being threatened, you know, to be raped by <laughs> essentially a, a man in drag. Um, you know, I guess there is this kind of like fear of fear of penetration running through the movie as well um yeah the the monstrous feminine yeah um (laughs) because when actually yeah when you think about it and also the the judge's entire family they're all male right they're no female no that's not true there's the one lady cop yeah there's a lady cop was she related yeah yes because she was john candy's cousin oh they mentioned that so um well, there goes that thesis. But well, but she's not like uh, she's not exactly a feminine presence. That's true. Yeah, she's a uh, very she's almost a masculine presence because she's you know she's a deputy. You know she's constantly like pointing huge weapons at people. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so let's say it's a, it's a, a family of degenerates who are entirely either male or if they're female, very masculine or kind of coded as male, we'll say. Yes, um, or are, just straight up monstrous. Yeah, yeah, which again actually uh, recalls, I'd say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because the family in that is entirely male, and I've seen a lot of you know um, analyses of the movie about how that, again, um, it imbues that family with a sense of wrongness because, you know, which not to say now, nowadays in our more enlightened era, of course, <laughs> to say that, a, a, you know, a, an all male family is wrong or bad is, is of course completely ridiculous. Well, but, but it plays, it plays into notions of, uh, um, re- what is acceptable reproduction. Yes. Yeah. You know, like, or that a family has like a male and a female at its head. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, a family that, that doesn't produce the next generation is, is, is wrong. Yes. You know, cause as we know, the purpose of marriage is procreation. Exactly. Yeah. Which again, like then that's why 
halfway through the movie, suddenly the judge is like, I want to make you, uh, Chevy Chase, my heir. You're going to marry my granddaughter and take over this place when I'm gone. Um, actually, interestingly, dethroning John Candy's character, because earlier in the movie he says John Candy can run the whole Shire however he wants when he's gone, but now he's making plans to have Chevy Chase usurp that role. So, Which is weird because... Um... Because, well, wait here. Because, Chev- because John Candy, <clears throat> as the kind, friendly cop is the most feminine presence in the movie. <laughs> so therefore, the judge is basically... More, dis- more feminine than Demi Moore? Yeah, well, I mean, of, in the judge's family also. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, of these hillbillies. So he's like, so he's a disappointment. He's getting rid of the feminine uh, the feminine grandson who would be his heir in order to instate Chevy Chase, whose assholishness uh, marks him as a true man. <laughs> yes, and also, like, imply- it's implied that he's uh, he's fertile. That's right, yes. Um, well, now you're talking like an academic. See, ooh, I know what I'm saying. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> but yeah, and then, um, I don't know, I don't know that you could even say that John Candy's character has much of an arc. Like, he's, he kind of seems like he wants to leave, and then he leaves. Yeah, yeah he leaves with the Brazilians, whom we have not even mentioned yet. Yeah, and I, I don't know what those characters are doing in the movie. They're yeah. not especially funny. They don't. No. They don't do much of anything besides providing an out for John Candy's character. They are Brazilianaires, and I think they exist just so that they can make that joke. Who speak Spanish? Right. Which makes no sense. So Brazilians par- speak Portuguese, not Spanish. I think what happened was uh, Dan Aykroyd. You know, he he loves doing research about like the paranormal, but what not it came- so much about other countries. No, when it came to like something that's actually documented, he's like, eh, not that interested. Yeah, who cares? Oh, and um, the 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 guy uh, Brazilianaire is played by uh, Taylor Negron, who I always remember as the uh, sardonic mailman from Better Off Dead. Truly, his his uh, greatest performance. Yeah, but he 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 was in a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, he he died fairly recently. Oh. he left a substantial body of work. That's that's too bad. Mostly in uh, character roles. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see like, <laughs> you know, um, he's not bad in this movie. I mean, you know, they don't he's have just, much to work. He doesn't for. have anything to do. Yeah, they're like just... do oh do kind of a goofy accent. Yeah, that's pretty much um, it. Like, what are you gonna do? Play off Chevy Chase? He doesn't give them anything. No, no, it's it's they're just there, and then they they run away with John Candy, and John Candy becomes their head of security down in Brazil. Like they're they're Brazilians, like right out of fucking uh, Three Caballeros. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I, actually, I think Three Caballeros is more accurate in terms of depicting South America than this movie. Well, Disney actually went to South America. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I believe the whole thing is you had a vacation down there and it was like, this would make a good cartoon. <laughs> I mean, it was actually like an educational short, wasn't it? But yeah, so, so actually, yeah, I remember there's that weird bit early in the movie when they first are getting in the car to go through the Pine Barrens, uh, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and the Brazilianaires, where like, they make some comment about like how... They want to see the Taj Mahal. I guess I thought at first they meant like the the Taj Mahal, like in India. In India, but I think they actually were referring to a casino. Oh, they call the Taj Mahal. I'm I'm guessing. I don't know. Okay. Um. Neither interpretation makes more or less sense, really. And neither is very funny. No. And then like the, the again, this movie is full of like anti-comedy comedy. Yeah. And then the female Brazilianaire says, <sighs> "In Brazil, we have the statue of Christ the Redeemer." And it's just, that's it. 
and it's weird because like it's not a joke are you did you just want to drop that amazing brazil factoid on us thank you dan Aykroyd. i know more about brazil now and then they went nate feijoada yeah it's like what the, nothing, this entire movie is just insane um yeah it doesn't um yeah i they're not they're not well-developed characters they're not interesting um yeah. I think we'd also also be kind of remiss in not mentioning the move the moment when this movie goes from bad to just completely irredeemable. Yeah, like I think I think I know the exact scene you're talking about and that leads into uh Dan Aykroyd's dual role. Well, it's 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 Dan Aykroyd and some other actor and they play these morbidly obese freak twins in diapers. Yes. Um, well, it's, it's just like Demi Moore escapes from the house. Yeah. She, uh, and while she's out in the junkyard surrounding the house, she just runs into these two man babies. They're played by Dan Aykroyd and another guy of no importance, uh, wearing giant prosthetic, like, they look like Halloween sumo costumes. Yeah, with like, uh... Rows of floppy titties. Yeah, like multiple rows. You yeah. Know, they're the, and they've got like a little like jerry curls on their head to look like baby Huey or something. And it's, well, first of all, it's like, pro, it might even, they surpass the dinner scene as <laughs> the grossest thing in this movie. And they are, it, they are very repulsive characters. Yeah. And it's. They're supposed to be the judge's grandsons, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, it's still confusing because. I can until this point. I mean, I kind of feel like all the all the judges' families kind of co- there's a coherence almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm kind of getting what's happening, you know, with them all. That you know, they're they're but these two are just out of nowhere. They don't seem to fit anywhere. Um, why is it the other the judges' other grandkids? Because we've seen three of them. They're all relatively normal, you know. But then he has these weird uh, freak grandchildren. Yeah, and they mention that they... Well, they mention that they they went to school in high school, at least. Because one of the, the things they say is, like, that they got too fat to finish high school. Even though they're not really that fat. They're and just... And they think, you're not fat! Yeah. I'm fat! You're, oh. not, you're not fat! I'm fat! Or whatever. It's so funny. Except it's not. Yeah. Um, it's weird, because I feel like they're from a completely different movie. Yeah. Like, like they're, like Dan Aykroyd was making a secondary project that was an adult baby fetish movie, and he, <laughs> and he like, mixed up the reels or something. Because they're just, like, so strange in here. Yeah, and again... Again, failing at the comedy. They're not funny. No. They kind of gave me the same creeping revulsion that I get from watching the uh, the Monster Baby and Eraserhead. Yeah, yeah. Because like, with, what the way Eraserhead gets to me, it's that uh, like absurd helplessness mixed with monstrosity. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it's um, the adult minds and the babyish bodies, and also lines like, "I think I dirtied my diaper." Yeah. It is so creepy and disgusting. Yeah. And it just gives me a bad feeling watching it. It's, and that was kind of the moment when, uh, you know, because, you know, the movie's, like, dumb up to that point where you're like, all right. But then at that point, it's like, Ugh. Yeah. And you, I think you turned to me and you were like, I, I hate these characters. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you know, until that point, yeah, the, like you said, the movie is dumb. It's not good. No. But, like, this is the point where you're just like, 
you're you're just kind of like I give up. Like <laughs> like Dan, like at this point in the movie, Dan Aykroyd is just like, oh, you're 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 still here, huh? How about some more? <laughs> like, do you think that was the point when Roger Ebert totally went up to those teenagers and told them to talk louder so you wouldn't have to hear the movie? That totally happened. Because that totally happened. Yeah, and then, that was that was a story that Roger Ebert told in his review of this movie. That apparently he was in an almost empty theater with a bunch of rowdy teenagers. And, oh my God, he went over to them, right? And you know, he's going to tell them off, right? That's what you're expecting, right? He's going to tell off these rowdy teenagers. But no, he asked them to talk louder. Oh, and then everyone in the theater stood up and clapped. Yeah, and then uh, the mayor came in and gave him the key to the city. <laughs> this totally happened. Uh, I, was, I was there. I was the mayor. <laughs> You're the mayor of Crazy Town. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically this entire, uh, they just make the rest of the movie just like even more painful. Yeah, and there's a, you know, they they kind of fight a little bit over, uh, over Demi Moore. Yeah, the and spoils. Is it, is it supposed to be innocent or is it supposed to be just creepy and disgusting and off-putting because they keep saying like, oh, she's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. You know, like, oh, well, if I win this card game, then I get Diane, which is, you know, her character. Right, yeah. And you don't know how to feel because it's like, oh, is it going to be like, oh, I would love her and feed her and call her George? Or is it like, yeah, you're going to get raped by man babies tonight? Yeah, it's it's very, it's it's ambiguous. Yeah, like, my flesh is crawling even talking about it. It also, I mean, it's hard to, again, you know, like we said, this movie has that sense of wrongness about it because... It's very difficult to place what what they are. You know, they they're very clearly giant man babies. Um, they're wearing diapers, which they shit in. They have like little like you know little like fake baby like haircuts. Um, but you know they're they're working in like a welding forge. They're like blacksmiths. You know, they're covered in soot from a blacksmith. They actually have like tattoos. If you look closely, they've got like oh they kind do. Of, they've got like sleeve tattoos. Which, again, like, it's like this weird combination of, like, adult and, and babyish. Which... And the attention to detail. Yeah. So, it's again, it's hard to tell if this is a, a successful attempt to, you know, create that, like, that, that sense of revulsion where you're completely revolted, but you can't put your finger on why exactly. I don't think anything is really a success in this movie. Yeah. I... And it's that, again, it's that point where, um, with a lot of movies you will watch it and you'll say to yourself, oh, they just missed. Yeah. I kind of felt that way watching Ishtar, where, you know, the movie isn't as bad as people say it is, and they fucked up enough things that the movie just didn't come together. And it's like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of too bad, because, like, there's some funny stuff in this. This movie, like, nothing works in it. No. Maybe, no. maybe the production design. Yeah. But, like... In terms of comedy, it's not funny. Thematically, it's completely confused, and I don't know what Ackroyd is trying to say with it. Yeah. Um, in terms of having characters that you like or identify with, complete failure. Yes. Just well, nothing the, works. The thing is, like, I again, I wouldn't say this movie just missed. I mean, like you said, this no, is it a, missed by a lot. It missed by a lot. <laughs> but you can still see places where it, it could have been if not good, better than it was, you know? Like, I would say, because there's so much going for it in just creative imagery, you know? Um, if it had been, for example, you know, filmed in a way with a coherent uh, tone, 
So you know whether you're supposed to be scared or or laughing for one thing. Yeah, but do you feel? I feel like that unevenness of unevenness of tone was baked in from the beginning. Because well, yes. in, in particular, the ending of the movie feels really half-assed. Yes. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean, I think it, if they had changed. Uh, a few details, like if the ending, we'll talk about that, I think, in a few minutes. Right. Because that's so, that deserves its own discussion. Um, it's so fucking yeah. dumb. But, but I mean, yeah. also with like, you know, no Chevy Chase. Get rid of Chevy Chase. You need characters at least if that we can root for as the main heroes. Yeah. Or at least I, like who act like human beings when they're concerned yeah. with these things. Well, first of all, like, don't, um, I don't know. Like, if you're, if you really, like, I understand the trope of, um, very a very straight laced type of person like descending into a horrific underworld. Right, so, right. So you know that's why you make them rich Manhattan yuppies. Yeah. But like, do you have to make them like complete? Like, you know, um, Demi Moore's character is just kind of like she's the woman. Yeah. You know that's that's how female characters are written. Um, but Cherry Chase is a fucking dick. Yeah. Like well, I really I wanted the judge to punish him. Well, it's, I was like, yeah, put that motherfucker in the bone stripper. Yeah, Demi Moore, kick him in the balls. Well, here's the thing, though, because early on, what happens is Demi Moore meets Chevy Chase at a party. Mm -hmm. And she wants to borrow his car so that she can go down and yell at some... Some guy. Some guy that uh, you that like. She plays it off like it's a professional thing because she's a, she's a high powered lawyer, but yeah. she's pro like you're like ah she's probably fucking him because you, right, yeah. you know women. Yeah, yeah. Like, they always they always fuck the guys who are bad for them. Yeah, and the thing is like when she says I need to go down and talk to this guy, Chevy Chase is something like oh that guy he's a creep he likes buying up property and filling beautiful lakes with garbage, and you know it's it's said in a way. That you think, oh, they put in that line to show that even though he's a successful publisher, he's not a bad guy. But the problem is that line is completely unconvincing coming out of Chevy Chase. And everything after that it makes it even more unconvincing because he's such a fucking asshole. Yeah, everything just completely erodes any kind of good impression so that he might have made. getting rid of Chevy Chase would have made this, from the get-go, a, a better movie. But another huge problem is Dan Aykroyd's performance as this judge because... The judge is like not not sinister enough to be like really scary and definitely not funny. I mean, he's basically just like Dan Aykroyd, like throwing out random folksy aphorisms that he's ma making up, and they're just like every single one falls flat. Um, yeah, it's all stuff like, "Oh, you'll be out of here quicker than corn through an opossum." Yeah, it's like okay, um, and it's just because and stuff like that can be funny. Because I've seen you do it in your comics. Well, thank you. Yeah. Because yeah. you have you have a flair for the language, but it it just doesn't work here. It's like oh, hey. yeah. It's just um, like you I know. said, we laughed once. Yeah. Um, it's it's just I don't know how Dan Aykroyd is interesting because every performance he's ever done, and we were discussing the other day, is really he always plays a guy on his own wavelength. I mean, every movie. Like, uh, Ghostbusters... Race Dance, yeah. Race Dance. I mean, he's not, like, wacky, but he's definitely, like, the wackiest of the Ghostbusters, you know? Definitely. Yeah, and then, like, Blues Brothers, like, well... He, Elwood. Yeah. Uh, and some Dry White Toast, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you got Dragnet, where he's, like, he plays, uh, what is it, Jack Webb, I think, or... Yeah, he plays the, um, he plays the Joe Friday role. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Where he's, um... Straight laced to the point of it, it. It kind of nicely parodies 
that character from Dragnet where he's like straight laced to the point of almost lunacy. Yeah, yeah. So he's and these are all not it's not that he's a character actor who plays the same character in every movie. Like Chevy fucking Chase. Yeah, they're all very different, but they're always like fish out of water in the world they inhabit. And it's the same thing here, but he's just doing it so over the top. He's just chewing scenery in such a way that you know when he was writing this movie, he's like, this is, if we could, he's like, like, um, George Lucas writing Jar Jar Binks. If we can make Jar Jar work, that'll make this movie work. And, and it's <laughs> like, no, it does not the, work. The key to all of this is Jar Jar. He's a funnier character than we ever had before. And Dan Aykroyd, like, if we can make Judge Alvin work, he's a funnier <laughs> character than we've ever had before. And... That's <laughs> true. Yeah, it's, it's weird because I don't really know how to... I mean, I can't offer any constructive criticism about how to make the character work <laughs> because, I mean, I'm not inside the actor's studio or anything. But, like, you know, I just... just um, it just so does not work. and Yeah, that, um, the performance really just falls flat. Yeah, it is... Oh, we didn't even mention when Digital Underground fucking randomly shows up. I actually really like this scene, With to the be young... honest. Yeah, well, it's the, it's like a few moments of joy in a movie, which is otherwise like a fucking slog. Yeah. But, um, yeah, with a young Tupac in tow, I should add. Yeah, his first screen performance. Yes. And, uh, he went on to better things, fortunately, before he yeah. was murdered. But, um... <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, because uh, uh, Tim, our host in Absentia, when I mentioned this movie, was like, just said, Digital Underground, why? <laughs> Do you think that, was Tupac's murder ever caught? I don't know anything about this. They, 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 they're pretty sure who fucking did it. Okay. But uh, was, was it a was it a disgruntled anything? Uh, uh, sorry, nothing but trouble fan. who <laughs> saw this movie and was like, Tupac, I blame you. <laughs> Uh, a nothing but trouble fan. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that makes sense because think about it. Like, the one person in the world who actually enjoyed this movie. Oh no, and... but we did find that person. Me? We, f- we found. Oh nothing, yeah, <laughs> we found a nothing but trouble fan. Yeah, that's right. Do you, do you have that tab open? Um, let me pull it up. This uh, guy's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Why nothing but trouble is nothing but brilliant. Now, the great thing about this blog post is this guy says absolutely nothing. He advances no argument and provides no proof for his thesis. Okay, I'm going to start I'm gonna start a little later in this review that he does. Yeah, he, just read like a couple lines out of it. Okay. Well, I don't know if I can stop at a couple, but here we go. <clears throat> in this, so uh, he's mentioned how the critics and audiences agree. Nothing but trouble is terrible. But he says, in this case, I find myself at odds with both critics and audiences whom, as all geniuses know, are the twin horns of Beelzebub or Beelzebub's lesser brother. Heads be fogged with sulfur clouds. They recoil at the image in the mirror before them and deny their own reflections. They do not recognize themselves, you see, because the truth has been magnified. They have not read the words on the rearview mirror. Objects are closer than they appear. And so is let loose the croaking chorus of bad... This is a bad movie. Worst movie ever. How could Dan Aykroyd have been permitted to have made such a bad movie? Bad, bad, bad. Was this written by the critic character from Lady in the Water? <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to say, uh, is this a Jay Sherman? <laughs> yeah. Because then he would have just said it stinks. Yeah. Um, the grotesque vision and art is beyond valid. It has a long and noble history. Chaucer, Swift... Rabalis, Alfred Jarry, shall I go on? I think you mean Rabelais. Oh, sorry. How would I say? 
Rabalus. Rabalus? Oh, I'm sorry. Fucking frog has a name that sounds weird. <laughs> well, I'm an American. What am I supposed to do? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like, this guy, he actually compares this movie. He, he says this movie is in the vein of um, Chaucerian satire. Yeah. What the fuck is this movie satirizing? It's an anti-authoritarian satire. That's what he says. However, I I remain unconvinced. Well, considering there's there's no coherent, I mean, well, you know, the ending of the movie. Yeah. Okay. So the ending. Spoilers. Uh, well, in case you were planning to go see nothing but trouble. You can rent it on the Google Play Store. <laughs> Yeah, this fucking guy. Yeah, this guy. Yeah, um, he also says that like uh, he tries to compare it to Lloyd Kaufman and Troma. Um, and other but unfav- like, but he is unfavorable towards Troma. Right. Which uh, is like fuck this guy. Yeah, yeah. Like okay, like if you watch, like watch this and then watch Toxic Avenger. Like which movie are you gonna have more fun at? Yeah. It's not gonna yeah. be fucking nothing but trouble. He says, yeah, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma turn out such films routinely. By the way, year in year out for their small cadre of devoted fans and on their worst day their films are far more disgusting than Ackroyd's people those people love them so yeah this guy's a fucking pretentious douchebag yeah he is I believe that he loved nothing but trouble but when digital underground came into the film he was like they ruined it they've ruined this masterpiece I must avenge Dan Ackroyd they put they put the rapidy rap hippity hop music in it yeah so actually has any are the rest of Digital Underground still alive? As far as I know. Okay, he works slowly. This guy. <laughs> He's plotting as we speak. Someone that's, needs... a, that's another thing that comes up in like uh, in Dan Aykroyd's work is like his secret desire to be black. That's true because Blues Brothers. Yeah, because yeah. Blues Brothers is basically like the appropriation of like a whole genre of music. Yeah. And um, <laughs> but uh, like in the it's like why why. Like, I kind of feel like um, Dan Eckerd was listening to Digital Underground. He's like, fuck it, I'll put him in my movie. I love this stuff. Because yeah. there's actually that bit where he plays like a, like a piano solo. Yeah. And he's really getting into it, too. Yeah. You can see the judge got soul. Um, yeah, and the Digital Underground, are they acquit themselves well in this movie. Because they're actually pretty good at, at just, like, astonished reaction shots. Yeah, they kind of... Uh... Yeah, they uh, well, they sp- they have better reaction shots than Chevy Chase. Yeah, uh, I feel like I f- who normally is is excellent at uh, yeah. reacting, but maybe it was because they were like, "Hey, Digital Underground, you want to be in a movie?" And they were, they were like, "Oh shit, we're in a movie. We we better bring our A game." Exactly. I mean, they didn't know what they were in for, but uh, yeah. But they- I I believe that they emerged fairly unscathed from yeah. the experience. Uh, people still enjoy them, I'm people, sure. People still did the Humpty Dance. Yeah, you know, they're... But you know what it was? It was because nobody fucking saw this pile. That's true. So. Um, yeah. Uh, like, I had no fucking idea that Digital Underground were in it until, like, I saw it, so. It's interesting because Digital Underground, they, they dress like, you know, musicians of the era. They've got yeah. the... They've got that thing where they're all just wearing, like, like a thrift shop exploded on them. Uh, which fits really well into this movie because everyone in this movie kind of looks like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just, they just came in in their street clothes, really. Well, Demi Moore's, like, awful outfit came from a Oh, my God. Yeah, like, I think he called it a romper when it first yeah, appeared. Yeah, like, uh, was this a thing in the in the, the early 90s? Because she's wearing, um, you know, she's a businesswoman. Oh, yeah. So she's wearing a very nice put-together outfit. Right. Um, which is, has a nice jacket. It's all white. She looks very good in it, but 
It's like a very nice looking kind of like halter type top, but it ends in shorts. Yes. Like kind of dumpy ass shorts. (laughs) Now, Demi Moore is a beautiful woman with a great body. They spend a moment to leer at her legs as she gets in a car early on. Um, She wears it better than probably most people would, but it's still, the fact remains it's a terrible fucking outfit. She looks like a Victorian child preparing for a day at the beach. Um, so yeah, it, it's terrible. Um, there is that one little bit that we, that, um, where she falls, you know, she, she falls out of the house. She's escaping the house. She falls out of a slide, hits the ground. When she gets up, she kind of, she kind of like adjusts her boobs. Yeah. It's really funny because she, she does like a belly flop out of the ground and uh, it's a moment. It's a very real moment because she gets up and she kind of hitches up her top. You know, to kind of get her boobs back into place before she yeah. like before she runs off, which I, I thought I thought was a very uh, that was a very real moment. Yeah, I don't I don't think Demi Moore is necessarily known for her comedy chops, and she doesn't get a lot of chance to display them in this movie. But I mean, that was when she does. You know, she tries. Yeah, like I have to, like her her mugging at the in the dinner table scene is like kind of bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was when she we, tried though. Yeah. Actually, like maybe she felt like she had to make up for Chevy Chase. Yeah, I, I wonder if she knew what kind of movie she was actually in. Like, because he, he God, like, it, early in the movie, we couldn't even understand what he was saying half the time because he was just mumbling. Yeah. Like, I, he was on fucking Xanax. <laughs> I want to, okay, so here's the thing. Like, a lot of the people in this movie are obviously Dan Aykroyd's friends. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, okay, they're, you know, John Candy and Chevy Chase and Brian Doyle Murray's in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, comedians that are kind of from that whole school. Demi Moore is, like, an actress. I don't think she comes from that background. So I feel like they hired her, like, she's, like, a legitimate actress who somehow got roped into this. All I know is that Demi, the most, all, I know Demi Moore is very continental. That's all I really know about her. How so? Like, what do you mean? Great. <laughs> we'll probably have to cut this. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> saying she's got a big old hairy snatch. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Continental breakfast, you know? <laughs> Search, don't don't search Google. Search Bing.com. Yeah, make <laughs> if sure you has... want. If you want the nudie cuties, they're on Bing.com. <laughs> if you want to see the biggest, the biggest beaver that never built a dam, it's in <laughs> Timmy Moore's crotch. <laughs> Oh, we're, oh, we're keeping it classy. Keeping yeah, it classy here. Sure. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. <laughs> Man, yeah. dude, you know what else? Oh my God, they took. <laughs> I gotta say though, they took a real risk putting Demi Moore in that in the romper shorts because because I'm surprised it's not a trailing out <laughs> like like the fucking kid in the peanut butter solution. <laughs> wardrobe and they're like oh man we, we gotta drop that hemline yeah, yeah. it's like we're we can see your sideburns <laughs> <laughs> oh god you're terrible muriel
<laughs> yeah. Why is why did John Candy die and Chevy Chase is still alive? They all, the good die young. Saying. Yeah. Um, I uh, we also watched um, we found clips of the Chevy Chase show. Yeah. Online. Um, so awkward. It's very this and this is very weird to me because uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Chevy Chase was briefly given a late night talk show. On the then fledgling Fox Network, it bombed horribly. I think it was pulled after about five weeks. Um, now Chevy Chase got his break on Saturday Night Live, where um, you know he played Joe Ford. He did Weekend Update, and he was he became famous because he had a charm and ease in front of the camera that came through, which. By the time of his talk show, it just evaporated. Yeah. It's excruciating to watch because he looks like a man who has never had a camera pointed at him in his life. Yeah. He's like blinking Morse code. Um, he's his this, uh, The monologue is just two jokes and just fall. everything falls completely flat. And when he ends, it really feels like there were supposed to be more jokes. And he just was like, I can't do this. Anymore. He's just like, oh, God, I can't. Yeah. Okay, and, and enough. We're kind of com- please cut to commercial for the love of God. And then they they have prop comedy. Yeah, and oh boy, Chevy Chase was sure known for his prop comedy. Yeah. Except no, he it's, wasn't. I feel like watching it. I feel like you know it was square peg round hole sort of thing. Like the studio, the studio was like, this is a late night talk show. There's certain things that you do on a late night talk show, and those things are a monologue. Um, shitty prop comedy, <laughs> and then goofy vision fisheye lens camera shots. Yeah, like they give him a little turn. Like um, I guess he plays along with the band, and yeah. they put a they put a camera like over his keyboard. Yeah, like yeah. I bet basically like level his hands, and it's it's labeled goofy vision. Yeah, and these are all things that like I can see like uh, a fledgling that you know you see they're they're the style of comedy that you see in Jay Leno, you see it in. Carson, you've seen it. Well, in, yeah, because uh, you know, late night late night talk shows are very hidebound. Like, right, they really yeah. don't break out of the formula. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, I don't think you know. I think to give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, that's not his forte. That's not his style. And maybe that's why he was so incredibly bad at it. Yeah, but but I feel like at least on uh, I. Yeah, I don't know. Because, like, you see him as, uh, you know, playing the anchor, like, on SNL. And it's like, oh, that guy's funny. Yeah. You know? Um, like, uh, you know, playing off of, uh, you know, Jane Curtin or whatever. Yeah. Like, he, he was good. But in this, he just, like, uh, he looks like he knows he's bombing and it's gotten inside his head. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's afraid that the audience might at any moment, like, leap out of their seats and tear him to pieces. Well, he really should worry about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, like, everybody hates his guts. Well, you know, it's like Marie Antoinette being, like, taken to the guillotine. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the um, the kind of, like, uh, hothouse flower of a rich person. And then, like, thrown onto the unyielding streets. Yes. I mean, maybe yeah. that's why, maybe, you know, maybe that's one reason why he th- uh, Dan Eckert thought Chevy Chase would be good for the role in Nothing But Trouble. Because, like, he does, you know, like, I feel like Fletch is, like, the perfect distillation of Chevy Chase as a person, which is kind of indistinguishable from his, like, screen presence. Yeah. Which is yeah. kind of like a smug, smarmy asshole. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. who definitely, you know, the whole I'm Chevy Chase and you're not phrase, you know, where he definitely carries himself like, well, like, I'm pretty much fucking better than you. So, yeah. just saying. That's what he did. Well, that's, yeah, that's him in every movie. Yeah. Um, except like, for he's Vacation. A little, yeah, he's a little goofy in Vacation because he just kind of plays that really stock, like, um, uh, bumbling dad character. Yeah. Which he does really well in that movie. Yeah. Because Vacation is fucking funny. That's the, that is his greatest stretch as an actor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I mean, every other movie, he's that like smarmy asshole, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, Caddyshack, Caddyshack 2, <laughs> um, Caddyshack, the animated series, <laughs> Caddyshack, the next generation. I don't know what, what else he's been in. Um, Caddyshack Beyond. Yeah. Beyond Caddyshack. Caddyshack 5, Caddyshacker. <laughs> A good day to Caddyshack. Caddyshack 4, the destruction of Jared Zinn. <laughs> Caddyshack 2, through the portal of time. Oh! Caddyshack 2, the clumps. <laughs> Caddyshack X, it takes place in space. Ooh, Caddyshack in the hood. <laughs> the point is, is that Chevy Chase fucking sucks. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I really liked him growing up because like, I knew him from uh, you know, vacation. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was like, yeah. oh, that guy's, that guy's funny. Yeah, um, I, I... and I liked him on SNL. Okay, this is this is one thing that really bothers me about this movie is yes. its thematic incoherence. Yes, yes. Um, now, now the fellow who we just read claims it's an anti-authoritarian satire, <sighs> and it's got bits that feel like it's trying to do that. But, like you said, there's no coherence to that. I feel like the strongest evidence for that, which this guy doesn't fucking mention in his essay, mm-hmm. because his essay has no content, Yeah, um, is the fact that after they go to the cops and then they come back to the mansion, to they think, you know, they think that they're going to arrest the, that the police are going to arrest the judge, um, and then they find out the police are in on it, they're cronies yeah. of the judge, and they're all being laughed at yeah. by, law, by law enforcement. Yeah. You know, you're saying, oh, shit, you got it now. And it's like, okay, like, you know, that's anti-authoritarian. Like, you know, um, like all these jerks know each other and they're going to protect their own. Right, right. But, and maybe this is because uh, Dan Aykroyd apparently is also um, fascinated by cops. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, John Candy is such a positive example of a police officer. Yeah. That it kind of, it kind of sucks the air out of that particular... Uh, Assertion. Yes. It's like, oh, all cops are terrible. Except this one cop who's like a really great guy. Not all cops. Oh, oh shit. They're right. Yeah. You know, blue lives do matter. This movie showed me the way. But also because at the very end, when when they make that huge revelation, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's going to be like, um, it seems like it's going to be a horrible, dark, depressing ending a la the original Body Snatchers ending, you know, um, or the original Brazil ending. Uh, instead, that mine fire uh, blows up and everything explodes in the end. Yeah, but then there's a coda where, wherein you see that um, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore have gotten away. And I guess they're like together. Yeah. And uh, Chevy Chase is watching TV, but who appears on TV and the coverage of the mine fire that blew up is, oh no, it's the creepy old judge, and he says he's going to come live with his son-in-law, and his nose is a penis. Ah! And then, I'm not kidding, uh, cut to Chevy Chase saying like, oh no, you're not, and he immediately leaves a Wile E. Coyote-esque 
cut out shape in the wall. Yeah. Through which he escapes. There you go. Thank you. And that um that's why the ending feels like really half assed to me. Yeah. Um It's like what a dumb visual to end on. And like what just like what it just a dumb resolution. Dan Aykroyd made this movie and he did not have a plan to end it. Apparently not. No, it, it was just yeah. Or it almost feels like there was a different ending and studio meddling was like, no, no, you can't have them like kill Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and like, you know, hide their bodies in a shallow grave. No. Well, yeah, because like I knew that um, I knew that there was no way this movie was going to head towards a positive resolution Yeah. For the, for the main characters because I was like, no, 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 like this, like the spirit in which this movie was written would like never allow that. Yeah. Like it's, it's going to be some kind of like ironic ending or you know somewhat not not downbeat but yeah. just like kind of grotesque yes ultimately one of the big issues with this movie that despite everything it leaves you very unsatisfied as a film besides that that final shot is chevy chase and demi moore's characters have gone through you know they've gone through their their journey into the underworld and they've emerged the exact same people they were at the beginning of the movie they have learned nothing. They have no arcs. They have not changed. They are once again in the comfort of their Manhattan penthouses, um, perfect, just resuming their lives as it was before. Um, so why why did we share this experience with them? Yes, it's the the central questions around these this movie are all wise. Like, why was this made? Like, why why this story? Yeah. Why these characters? I also liked it uh, in the ending when they um, they ha- they show Chevy Chase reacting to the the footage of the judge on TV, and you you were like, oh here's here's his hilarious PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, because yeah, because he's like asleep, and he's kind of like no, and Demi yeah. Moore is like, wake up. She has to wake him up because he's having a a nap mirror. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's funny because. Because it was, um, it's funny because he's like, traumatized. Like almost in a way, it's it's almost like the movie pulled its punches in that way. Because imagine how much darker it would have been if they had shown them as like severely traumatized. Like, yeah, they got because they have they have genuinely gone through an ordeal. Yeah, they they have uh, they have seen people murdered right in front of their eyes in the most horrible fashion. Yeah, and you know, but maybe it's almost like the movie was a little too too cartoony to go down that road yeah because it is i mean it ends with like a literal take from a cartoon yeah you know um people get murdered but in cartoonish ways like there's no there's no gore just bones yeah which in you know often bones are kind of used for comedic effect right they're clean so it's not like you know they're like imagine if the bone stripper ended with like fucking like um just like bones with like chunks of gore and flesh hanging off them like smacking into the target and like sliding down leaving blood streaks it would be a completely different feel you know yeah uh, yeah and like i don't know if that would have been too much or completely awesome i actually think that i think it would have been better because you know when you do go all completely balls out like look at dead alive which is i mean it just just does not pull any punches that movie is just like 
fucking insane. Yeah. Um, there's Dead so Alive is fucking great. Yeah, it's like, it is a disgusting movie. It is kind of, in, in some ways, it's kind of, you know, terrifying. You know, I'm not, maybe. I mean, it's pretty, there's some scary bits. At least, you know. But the fact that it goes so far is what makes it both funny and and horrifying. So it's both of the things that this movie failed to do. Plus, actually, you get an, a likable protagonist, which goes a long way to making that movie also kind of palatable. Yeah, you do feel bad for the guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you want to see him succeed and get with this nice Italian lady. Yeah, like I did. I did not feel bad for Chevy Chase at any point. No, I, I really, I wanted him to suffer. Yeah. Well, he. Brought I felt. Him I felt. A little bad for Demi Moore because she basically got, like, sucked into this ungodly misadventure through Chevy Chase's character's assholeism. How do you feel about the Brazilianaires? They're, like... They egged mm, him into it. I I guess, but, like, they're, they're like, just cartoon cutouts. Yeah. Well, no, remember, because Chevy Chase was like, oh, I better pull... There's a cop. I better pull over. And they were like, no, Chevy, uh, keep driving. It'd be funny. And he was like, okay. Is it like, oh, I get it. It's a reference to uh, how much Brazilians love racing because of Ayrton Senna. Oh. No, I, I'm, I don't really believe that. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm grasping at straws. <laughs> you know what You know what I wrote down in my notes? What? The phrase pud collar. Oh, yeah. Wow. There is literally a cock ring joke in this movie. Yeah. Because when when uh, Chevy Chase is trying to, like, weasel his way out of marrying uh, the judge's grotesque daughter, he says, like, oh, well, I don't think there's any way that I can satisfy such a woman. And uh, the judge says, oh, you, you can just wear a pud collar. And I turn to you and I was like, oh, my God, he just told him to wear a fucking cock ring. Yeah. <laughs> Why does that feel like another level in this movie? Like, is it just because as Americans we recoil more at like sex than at like gore and stuff? Could well be. Or is it the fact that it's Chevy Chase wearing a cock ring? Oh, oh. I mean, like like would, would would a cock ring for Chevy Chase just be like a belt around his entire body? <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> we were talking about the movie right after we watched it. And you were, I think you were making the point, like, this, you know, the movie deliberately pushes you away. Yeah, it really does. And I said, oh, it's afraid to love. <laughs> for, let's, let's pour one out for Dan yeah. Eckward's directing career. Yeah. And again, I don't think that he necessarily should be blamed for everything in the movie. Well, um, we could also blame uh, the, the crew. Yeah, yeah. That seems unfair. For not rising up in in protest. <laughs> For not staging a coup in the middle of this thing. But no, let's be real. They were collecting a paycheck. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had families I mean, to feed, so they had to yeah. work on this garbage movie. I, I mean, here's the thing. Dan Aykroyd, yes responsible probably for for 99 percent of the things wrong with this movie uh but a very big glaring flashing neon lights one percent is chevy chase yeah like he was like grudgingly very obviously grudgingly doing a favor for yeah. a friend and yeah. like for what like oh like shit like i need to put a down payment on my summer house <sighs> you know yeah yeah, which interestingly, I, I haven't seen anyone else involved in this film making a uh, writing a book about how like, oh yeah, it was right for Dan Aykroyd to take the blame. Like yeah. all the other people who actually are blameless. Well, in... honestly, anybody who writes an official biography of Chevy Chase probably had to like just relentlessly kiss his ass and stroke his ego to get the access. Yeah, 
Like, was it even worth it? Like, what, what could you possibly get out of the experience of kissing up to Chevy Chase? I don't know, Rena Fruchter. If you're listening, yeah, hope it was worth it. I hope you're proud of yourself. Yeah, you sold out your integrity. I expect more from the person who I have never heard of before this moment. I expect more from the person writing biographies of former SNL cast members. <laughs> On the next episode of Have You Seen This, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. <laughs>